you know, my hope that as we go down this pathway together uh, and by talking about these things is it will open us a space where healing can occur. Uh, and when we don't talk about these things, we, we, don't, we don't open that space. Sexual brokenness is, and it's associated guilt and shame, right? It's, it's connected to guilt and shame in some really deep and profound ways. Um, it, it loves to hide in the darkness and to fester there, right? And then to, to oppress us continually. And we want to bring that out and so, that, so that the light of the gospel can bring healing and transformation. And so that's one of my deep prayers and longings and hopes as we, you know, faithfully go through the scriptures and talk about these things. And as we enter into the conversation about sex, uh, I just want to say the first thing is to create a space where we can talk about what the Bible says. We're, we're a church, and we're a church that's rooted in the scriptures. And so we want to start off by just creating a space where we can talk about what the Bible says. That's, that's, that's our true north. Um, and we want to do that, though, with, with, with sincerity, right? So we're honest as we approach it and the things that we struggle with. Um, you know, we want to be honest with curiosity, like why does God say this? And, and prayer, you know, and discussion with each other and so that there's space and there's time for that process to unfold um, because there's immense depth to the biblical message around sexuality. And like I said earlier, it can't just be this, you know, you know one sermon kind of thing. We've, we've got to sit with this a little bit. And then in the way that we conduct ourselves in this conversation, you you know, as with all conversations, we're called to, uh, to, to, to live in contrast to what I would say would be the fruitless sort of shouting matches and, you know, character assassinations that, that oftentimes typify conversation in the world about hard topics, especially when you get into social media. Look, we can, we can show a different way to have these conversations, and we've been called to do that. And so my prayer is also that we will, we will do that. Um, I'm looking forward to the Q&A later this afternoon. I hope you'll consider coming back and being a part of that. Um, and then today's sermon is not an arrival point, but more of a, of a starting point or not a starting point. We've had these conversations before, but a point along the way in this journey that we're, we're in together. Um, and, and so where we're talking about uh, what does it mean to do a better job of discipling people in the area of sexual ethics? Um, and there's going to be more learning and more conversation. We've got gospel academies and other opportunities. We have a whole um, table of resources in the back there. And we want to encourage you to, to grab something that, that piques your interest and, and, uh, and read that. Um, I'm going to be mentioning a couple of websites uh, in the sermon today that are very, very helpful have been such a blessing to me in this, in this process. And so uh, just all of that is out there. And we want to we wanna know that, that we're on a journey, right? Um, and then lastly, uh, in the beginning here, uh, please know that uh, this is not a conversation that we've entered into lightly. Um, there's been a lot of prayers. There's been a lot of conversation within leadership and, and intentionality, um, sincere effort to approach this, you know, with biblical faithfulness, awareness to the culture uh, in which we live, and then a, a, a desire to shepherd well. And so we're, we're trying to balance all of those, and we're probably going to mess up and fail at times. And, and when we're having these conversations, all of us are going to mess up and fail. So I just want to remind us of the importance of grace as we seek to love God well and love each other well uh, as it pertains to sexual ethics. So 
All right, here's our passage for today. Open up to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. Um, if you have a Bible, or you can grab the Bible there in front of you. We'll also be putting it up on the screen. Sometimes I like to see it on the page, because you can kind of orient it, you know, the different parts and location. When we put it up on the screen here, it's, it just doesn't have that unique space on the page. And we're going to be referring back to different pieces. And so uh, I just encourage you to pull out that Bible um, and take a look. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. And we've been moving through this book uh, one passage at a time. And uh, so what we talk about today does build on what's come before, and all of those sermons are available uh, on our podcast or on our YouTube channel if, if you want to go back and look at it, re-look at any of those. Um, and uh, I'm just going to straight out read it, and then, and then I'm going to explain. There's a lot of context here that's going to need to be added. All right, First uh, Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against one another... Does he dare go to law before unrighteous and instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such, uh, such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As we explore this passage today, we're going to do it under two headings. Um, the first one is there's a better way, and then the second one is the better way is on display in us. There's a better way the better way is on display in us. Okay, there is a better way. Throughout the course of this book, Paul's been trying to communicate, communicate to the Corinthian church that there's a different way to do life. Um, there is the world's way and there is God's way. And oftentimes God's way looks like foolishness to the world. And he's making them aware of that. But, but ultimately God's way is more beautiful and life-giving, and we could say many more things about it than that. And so there's two parties within the church in Corinth uh, that have a grievance against each other, and rather than solve it uh, in the church context, they are going outside the church. They decided to go to the secular court in the city of Corinth and to bring their grievance to the secular court, which would have been a public court where everybody could watch and see what was happening. 
Uh, it seems that this disagreement they're, they're having has to do with greed uh, on some level. Now, let me just say something about the secular courts in Corinth. Uh, there were not like the secular courts today. Uh, they were deeply infected with, with classism and corruption and uh, kind of a spirit of showmanship. And some of you are saying, well, that does sound like our courts today, right? But actually, this was on a whole nother level. When you read about it, you, you, you know, I don't know if any, did anybody remember the Geraldo TV show? Uh, you know, where like, you know, people would devolve into throwing chairs at each other and, you know, yelling and shouting matches. The Corinthian court was kind of a public display like that. And so, um, and so here you can imagine what a disaster it would be to have Christians um, who, who are intended to, to be displaying a better way, which we'll get into in a second, but you can imagine uh, what a disaster it would be to have Christians suing each other and airing out this dirty laundry in front of the whole city of Corinth, right? So uh, they're supposed to be living on mission, uh, but, they're, but they're just airing out all of this dirty laundry. And Paul's saying to them, as he's been saying all throughout 1 Corinthians, he's saying there's a better way. There's a better way. And if you would remember, he's gonna say two things. Who you are and what you've been called to do, you'll begin to embody that better way. And so just real briefly in verses one through eight, he makes four points. And I gotta be brief here because I wanna, I wanna get to the latter part and spend my time on that. He reminds them of um, the sense of calling that is upon them and who, who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and if they embrace that, they will begin to live out this better way. So the first thing he says to them is an identity reminder. He says, you're going to judge the world and angels. You're going to judge. Now, where does he get this? He probably, you know, in the Old Testament, we've got Daniel 7 uh, suggests that this is the case. Um, and then there's some passages in the book of Revelation. And it's just rooted in the idea that when Christ comes in his fullness, those who put faith in Christ will reign with him. That's the root of what Paul is saying here, that when Christ comes, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's people are gonna reign with him. And part of that reigning with Christ entails this high, high level of judgment. So if you are the kind of people who are gonna be operating at this high, high level of judgment, then why would you submit yourself to the world's courts? That's his first, remember who you are. Secondly is a wisdom point he makes. You have the wisdom you need already. Can it be that there is no, he writes, that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Uh, and there's a strong resonance here with Exodus 18, where if you remember back when Jethro comes to Moses, and he, sa- he encourages Moses to see that the wisdom they need is in the community. They don't need to go outside of the community to find the wisdom that they need. So wisdom is the second one. The mission is the next one. He says to them, you're compromising the mission given to you. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers, he writes, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why is it a defeat? Because you're failing to manifest the testimony. You're failing to show the goodness of God's ways to the community around you. Um, That's kind of the Geraldo dynamic, right? They're airing out their dirty laundry in front of the whole city of Corinth and not making use of who they really are and the resources that God's given them to come up with a better solution likely than what they would get in the secular court. And then lastly, the character. You're called to suffering. He says, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded? Oh, is this, doesn't this minister to you? I mean, how many times in your relationships with other believers, like you just want justice, you want rightness, and then you remember that you're called like Jesus to be a person who suffers, to be a person endures. But he goes on in verse eight to say, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Um, there, there's a passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4 where, where Paul poignantly describes the amount of suffering that he carries for the sake of others. Um, to, to the present, he writes, uh, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things." And of course, we can look to Jesus, too, who went to the cross. Like, this is what it means to be a Christian, is that there's an amount of suffering that comes with it. As you behave, as you, as you, st- as you take up your cross, right? And he's reminding them that that's a factor in the dynamic in the church in Corinth right now. Uh, because, and, and, and you, can, you can walk this path, because ultimately you know, just as the case was with Paul and with Jesus, that God will deliver you. From suffering, there is a day when you will be delivered, so you can enter into suffering on a whole nother level. So, identity, wisdom, mission, and character—those are four reasons why uh, how they can live into this better way. The Corinthian Christians are keep conducting their affairs um, according to the ways of the world, but Paul keeps showing them there's a better way. And it not only is there a better way, they have the remarkable blessing, and this is the second point of our message today, of being called to display that better way. They've been called to display that better way. The better way is on display in us. Now, it's going to take a little for us to work through this. Verse 9, let's, let's refresh our memories here. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, these are character traits that will not be in the kingdom because if they were, it wouldn't be the better way. It would be the same as the world. But thankfully, none of these are beyond the healing work of Christ. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So rather than air out their dirty laundry before the world, they are to present themselves as examples, as trophies of God's grace, capable of suffering injustice, and striving to show the world the way of the kingdom of God as God enables them to do so through his washing and sanctifying and justifying work. So there's a transformation individually and collectively collectively of them. And, And what this means is Paul envisions a missional community. The church is a missional community. In the church... You get, to, you get a taste of the kingdom of God, is what he's saying. That's, what's suppo- that's, what you're, that's what God is doing. He's putting this new and better way, the kingdom of God, on display for the world in you. It's actually very similar to what he did with Israel 
when he gave them the Ten Commandments. And they're supposed to display the Ten Commandments and the community of the Ten Commandments to the world. Right? And there's ten here as well. So there's echoes of that, that Old Testament movement. That, and, but, but what's happening, if they forget Christ's work in their lives and start behaving just like the world, he says, um, they forfeit their calling to display the kingdom of God to the world. Um, and, they, and they could even, if they're not careful, they could forfeit their place if they turn from Christ. I mean, the only reason they have place in the kingdom is because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so he's, he's warning them, he's calling them, and he's saying, look, don't forfeit your calling, and even underneath that, don't forfeit your place by turning away from the grace of Jesus Christ. So there's 10 ways they're in danger of forfeiting their calling here that are listed in these verses. Um, it's just, it's, it's really thick, right? Um, and four of them have to do with sexual ethics. There's only three in English because one of the, the English terms is actually two words in Greek. So there's four of them that have to do with sexual ethics. Uh, and, and since these are the most controversial uh, in our time and in, in our day right now, this is what I'm going to spend my time on is, is work, trying to work through these and unpack them. So um, several points about the text and then, we'll, and then just the application side of it. So a couple of preliminary things. There's no hierarchy of sins here. When you look at that list, there's no hierarchy of sins. Sin is sin. It's all bad. And all of it prevents us from the kingdom apart from the intervention of Christ, which we'll come back to again. We've already said we'll come back to it again. At the same time, I think it's important for us to recognize that and we'll see this next week as we get into next week's passage. And we see this just in the world around us. It's important for us to recognize that sexual sin is something that we, we need to handle with special care. Why? There's something sacred about the human body. Such that when it's violated, there can, there can be a deeper resonance than there is with, with other sins. Okay? Rape is not the same as theft. Right? We, we all know that because of the sacredness of the human body. Uh, in, in the terms of the destruction that it leaves, there's something significant there. So, so yes, all sin is sin, but a person's body is precious and sacred. And Paul will make this point, again, as I mentioned in next, week, next week's passage. He, he will say, you know, about the body being the temple, right? Okay, um, According to this passage, sexual sin includes the following. So let's just sort of break it down here. Um, the first one is, is porneia, which is translated sexual immorality. And it's a catch-all phrase that refers to sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It's a catch-all phrase that refers to any sex that's outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Okay. Adultery, which is sexual activity on the part of a married person outside of the marriage. And remember that Jesus said, if you look lustfully after a woman, you have committed adultery. So obviously, you know, this would include things like pornography. Um, and, and the reality of the pervasiveness of heterosexual sin is massive, right? And churches that seek to have a healthy sexual ethic have to address 
that as, as much as they address other forms of sexual sin, right? This has to be fully in the mix. Again, when we talk about sexual sin, sexual ethics, this is not an us-them thing. This is an us-us thing. We are all broken, and we are all stand in need of healing. And then this other term in English, it says practicing homosexuality, which is engaging in sexual activity with people of the same sex. There's actually two words in the Greek that refer to the active and the passive participants in the male homosexual activity. And a few notes about those terms and the conversation around them. It's been argued by some that this is a reference to pederasty or other specific forms of sexuality and does not refer to monogamous homosexual relationships that we might see in our culture today. And for a while, that was a view that was, that was promoted um, about some of these passages in the Bible. But, you know, scholarship, both from the perspective of, uh, you know, straight scholars, if you want to call it that way, and, and, and gay scholars, uh, Christian scholars, and non-Christian scholars, they've shown that, you know, monogamous homosexual relationships were present in the ancient world. And that there were, like Paul could have just used the word pederasty instead of what he used here. Um, it was a very common word. So he could, if he meant that, he could have just used that word. And so, um, so, so this is especially true uh, when you see that there, there's nothing in these passages that, about homosexuality to suggest that he's qualifying his words to refer to a specific kind of homosexuality. Right, so we can we can talk about this more in the Q and A session. Maybe if if it's a question you want to pursue, a lot of the resources that we have in the back will will go through point by point some of these questions and the, the process of that. So, um, I just want to uh, point you to those additional uh, resources. If you want a simple, crystallized way of capturing the biblical sexual ethic, you could say something like this: God's design is that sex is for a man and a woman committed to one another in a marriage relationship. God's design is that sex is for a man and a woman committed to one another in a marriage relationship. And the reason we're putting up the, uh, that up there, this came out in some of our conversations, is, you know, sometimes this, this whole thing gets complicated and you just want to know what is my true north or what is the Bible teaching that's a true north. And so, you know, that's my best attempt to give the biblical teaching true north. And then it's a process of saying, okay, now how do, what are the implications of that for my own thinking? What are the implications of that for my life? What are the implications of that for my community? Et cetera, et cetera, for how I engage with the world. And that's kind of the crystal statement that I want to present for you. We actually, we actually had that last week when Pastor Paul w was preaching. Um, so the Lord, through Paul, is inviting you and me in the midst of all of our sexual brokenness to embrace that principle uh, in word and deed, um, as a way to enjoy the life of the kingdom now and to display it to the world. And then he's saying the converse, that those who practice these things, sexual immorality, immorality adultery, and homosexuality, will not inherit the kingdom. Um, and, 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 that, and so here's the thing, though. That rules all of us out initially. That rules all of us out initially. Because none of us can say we've conducted our lives in, in perfect purity with respect to sexuality. So, so the kingdom would be for none of us except for one thing, Jesus Christ. 
verse, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the big picture is that all of our sexual brokenness is redeemable in Christ. And, I, and I'll say more about uh, what that does and doesn't mean necessarily. Um, but that's the big picture is that all of our sexual brokenness is redeemable in Christ. And maybe some of you here this morning, you just are feeling that oppression of sexual brokenness and you've been longing for freedom. Um, and I just want to point you to Jesus Christ. I just want you to know that Jesus uh, is there for you. He has gone to the cross to atone for your sin, for my sin. And his arms, it's like his arms are outstretched to you. He's inviting you to come and put your faith in him to trust him as Lord and Savior. And the outworking of that, sometimes initially and sometimes over time, is increasing healing in all areas of your life, including in the area of sexual brokenness. All right. So this biblical ethic, which is articulated in this passage and, and several other passages uh, in the Bible, um, is different from the world's sexual ethic in, in some key ways. And I just want to say, if we've never really studied the biblical sexual ethic, I mean, you might have heard snippets and pieces throughout your life, but never really dug into it and studied it and tried to understand it. I think that might be the case for a whole lot of us. We just, as a church, broadly have not been good at this. So if that's true of you, or if over time, soaking in the culture of the world, you know, you've moved away from the biblical sexual ethic to a more world, worldly sexual ethic, um, you know, it may take some time and some space to process and, you know, the biblical sexual ethic and to allow it to work its way into the fabric of your life and of our community more broadly in a deeper way. Um, and that's what, we're, that's what we want to create a space for here as a church. We want to create a space for that kind of processing and, and exploration. So again, this is not an arrival, but a step on our collective journey together. So let me try to aid the process. And I know I'm aware of time. Let me try to aid the process by clarifying one thing and suggesting two things. And the clarification has to do with homosexuality. And here's a misconception that I've encountered in my recent conversations with, with people. As we've been talking about this subject, um, it's a misconception that I, I want to make sure and clear, clear up. It's not a sin in a sort of technical way of, 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 of sinning, you know, executing a sin. It's not a sin to be attracted to people of the same sex. Now, it may not be, we can talk about what God, God's design is. We can talk about nature and nurture, and we will get into that a little bit. Um, but it's, it's actually technically a temptation. It's a temptation to be attracted to people of the same sex. And someone who has a lifelong attraction to people of the same sex, whether by, by nature or by nurture, but is committed to living according to the biblical sexual ethic is dealing with, I want to just acknowledge, a different struggle, but from a sin standpoint, it's no different from anyone struggling with, say, an extramarital attraction to someone of the opposite sex. This is a really important distinction on so many levels 
for us to, to grapple with. Um, this means that, that we need to apply community and grace to the intentions and failures of the same-sex attracted person in the same way we apply it to the intentions and failures of the heterosexual person. For too long, the church, uh, in the church, it's not, this hasn't been the case. There seems to have been a separate standard, right, for each, while, uh, while there being a different standard, for, there is a separate standard between the heterosexual and the homosexual struggles around sin. And we need to, we need to address that. It's not, it's not biblical. Um, all, and so here's, here's what we, here's one thing that we can say that to me is sort of clarifying on this issue. And we can talk about this a little bit more in the Q and A if you want, but all serving and leading opportunities, this is, I'm trying to press it home here in the church are open to somebody who experiences same sex attraction, uh, but is seeking to live the biblical sexual ethic. Um, to put it another way, to put it in a really concrete way, I would have, I would happily serve under a pastor who was lifelong same-sex attracted, but committed to living out the biblical sexual ethic. Happily, comfortably. I wouldn't hesitate for a second. And some of you might say, well, that sounds like a really rare person, but actually no. There are more and more testimonies and people coming forward to share that this is in fact their journey. They have decided, even though they experience with same-sex attraction in a way that seems permanent, they have decided to commit themselves to live out the biblical sexual ethic. And there is a whole, there are many, many examples, and even pastors um, who have chosen this path. And so it's not as rare as you might think it would be. In fact, I cannot remember a time in the history of this church when we did not have people in this church for whom that was the case. That they were same-sex attracted, but had decided to live out the biblical sexual ethic. This church is 18 years old. I've been here since the beginning. I cannot remember a time when we didn't have people who would fit that category, including including today. Okay. So that's one important thing to clarify. Second thing is a suggestion to the church. Um, Not this verse, this is not a suggestion. This is more than a suggestion. Not this verse nor any other verse justifies the mistreatment of same-sex attracted people or the gay community. And we talk about whether that term sits right with you, but at the end of the day, part of the reason that there is a gay community is because they've been ostracized in some ways from other community. And that's something we have to fix. We have to deal with. So anyway, uh, not this passage or any other passage, um, not this passage or any other passage, um, uh, 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 I I lost my place. Yeah, justifies the mistreatment of same-sex people or the gay community, which I would say, I want to call out, has shamefully... Uh, been the case throughout history. I'm trying to stay so close to my notes because if I don't, I got too much to say and I'll be all over the place. So focus, Andrew. Um, Sexual ethics is not an us-them situation. It's an us-us situation in the sense that we all fit into the brokenness of sin category. And remember Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery, right? So it's a high, high standard. 
And there's no justification in scripture for any kind of wicked behavior towards same-sex attracted people or the gay community. And we need to call that out. We need to stand against it. And we need to embrace a biblical approach to community and to interactions with others. Okay? For all people who find themselves laboring under the guilt and shame of sexual sin of any kind, Jesus offers words of life, of grace and forgiveness. And we as a community mirror that grace. This is a really important dynamic that a lot of times people can't see what God is saying to them. They need us to show it initially so that they can then begin to comprehend the goodness and the grace of God in their lives. We have an incredibly important role. We display the kingdom. Um, I would say that, I just want you to know, there's an amazing community of of same-sex attracted individuals in the UK who are living out the biblical Christian ethic and seeking to teach churches uh, how to do the same. They've got testimonies and podcasts that are extremely powerful, um, I, and I want to rec- recommend them to you. I'm going to put up um, the address here. They have a church audit that we have gone, started to go through as staff and leadership. Um, and so it's livingout.org. I've also had recommended to me an American uh, organization, the centerforfaith.com there, and want to encourage you to check out both of those. And then I want to say something to those who are skeptical about the biblical sexual ethic. Um, one question you'll have is, why did God make it this way? If this is true, why did God make it this way? Why did God design the world this way? Why does it matter? And we don't have time to go into all the answers. There's lots of answers in scripture. But I want to point to you the one that I find the most compelling. I think is most central. It's gospel-centered answer. And we have books back there and other recommendations. You can dig into this more. We can talk about it at the Q&A. But the, the, the reason... The best description I've heard it called is the divine romance. There is this divine romance that has been written into the world that God has created. Like everything in creation, God created sexuality to say something. Like all of creation, the purpose of sexuality is to say something about God. To give us the basic vocabulary to begin to comprehend what is otherwise incomprehensible to us. And the gospel message is ultimately a romance story. It's the divine romance. God has set his sights on his bride and he's committed himself to complete faithfulness to her. And it's an exclusive relationship and nothing will prevent him from making it a reality. In the words of Sam Alberry, who is a a same-sex attracted pastor and teacher, To make sexual freedom our ultimate good is to think that sex and romance is simply an end in itself. But if we realize that our fascination with romance is actually a memory trace of a deeper story, an echo of a greater tune, a signpost to the ultimate destination, then we will find the reality that can transcend even the most intimate of relationships we can experience. This is what God invites us to do. It's why he cares who we sleep with. It's why we care who we sleep with. Our sexuality is meant to tell a story. The greatest story because it's all about the greatest love. The love God has shown us in Jesus Christ. You know, we have had a number of conversations as leaders 
We've had a number of conversations beyond that as we've been moving through these passages in 1 Corinthians. And as I shared earlier, I've been so blessed by those conversations and been surprised to see some moments of healing and things coming out that maybe were hidden and, and just coming out into the light of the gospel. And it's been such a blessing. I was on the phone with one of the people in this congregation who is same-sex attracted, but has committed to live out the biblical sexual ethic. And I was asking lots of questions in preparation for this message and writing down notes furiously. And um, as I was listening to this person talk, I had a sensation I'd experienced when I was on the Living Out website and listening to testimonies there of a sense of awe at the commitment and the love for Jesus and the desire for faithfulness that I was witnessing in the life of this person. And I just had to stop for a second and say that to this person. I just say, you know what? I just want you to know that I want to be like you. I want to take everything in my life and submit it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, including my sexuality, in the way that you have done. You inspire me. I want to be like you. And then I waited. One beat, two beat, three beats. I wondered. And then I heard emotion, strong emotion on the other side of the phone. And I waited a little bit longer and I said, what nerve did I touch? And this person said, I have never heard that in the church before. No one has ever said that to me. Thank you. Not my words. These are Jesus' words. Words of blessing. Words of love. Words of grace. If we're going to be effective as a missional community, which I really hope we are going to be more and more over time, we've got to get some of these difficult topics sorted out. And this is one of them. And we got to bring out of the darkness our sexual brokenness in all of its forms so that we can experience the healing light of the gospel and the transformation that comes. And this is going to take humility and conversation and love and grace, you know, confessing our sins one to another and being healed. All of that's going to be part of the mix. But what we're going to see is when people experience the, the light of the gospel bringing the healing in the areas of brokenness that are part of who we are, we're going to want to praise God more. And that's going to be a good thing. And the kingdom of God is going to be on display in us more. And that is going to be a good thing. Are you ready to walk down that path together? In all the challenge and the uncertainty that includes... Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to walk in faithfulness and love and grace in mercy and truth uh, in Christ? Would you help us to walk as you have called us to walk for your glory, for our blessing, and for the mission that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.